and bring your own scripture or don't have one on your phone. You can uh, look in the pew in front of you and find a, a maroon Bible. And on page 555, you'll find the text of the message this morning. Give your attention to the Word of God. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was, was to stand in the king's place. There is, was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Father, bless your understanding, the reading and the exposition of your infallible and errant word. Amen. I know no other way to read Ecclesiastes than to read it for what it is. And when you read a book like Ecclesiastes, you have, it's similar to reading the book of Job. You have to read it carefully and critically because there's much in this book that makes you scratch your head as you try to reconcile it with the rest of Scripture. And I know no other way to understand it than to understand it simply as it is presented. I'm, uh, some of the older commentators say this was a, uh, a known diploma employed by, um, um, it, it seems to be Solomon writing, he calls himself the king in Israel, and uh, details and chronicles a life that would directly lead you uh, to think it's Solomon. Because uh, he's installed in that position, and then some later commentators want to say, no, it was just a, a literary device, a poetic device that the writer uses for a particular literary genre. I think, 
I think that's all nonsense. And I'm encouraged to see there's a whole new generation of, of uh, young scholars who make the point, no, this is Solomon. This is his retrospective on a misspent life. And I think this passage in particularly shows this as much as any of the others as we read through this. He's an old man, not by years. We count up all the years of Solomon's life in the Bible. We, we, uh, it's hard to, to get to the point that he made it past 70 years old. But he's been through a lot of wear and tear. He started out like gangbusters, serving the Lord, asking for wisdom, knowing how to divide the baby, as they say. And yet, he began to have his heart turned away from the Lord by all of his foreign alliances that involved marriage relationships to make uh, treaties. And we're told very explicitly in 1 Kings chapter 11 that those foreign alliances and those foreign marriages turned his heart away from the Lord. And when you read that grim assessment that the historic book of 1 Kings gives, you have this picture of a wasted life. So on that basis, when you come back to Ecclesiastes, there's great hope. There's great hope of repentance and faith for the worst kind of offender. And I believe that's how we must take this book. It's full of cynicism. It's full of pessimism. It's full of the, the passage that we read last week. It, it could almost be described as despair. And the truth is, there are times in a believer's life that we struggle with those very same things. How about a cynical observation in, in my first point from verses 4 through 6 of the text? I saw that all toil and skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Jealousy of others is a primary motivator of others. Several years ago, someone wrote a book called The Politics of Envy, and the premise of the book was that everything that happens in our political sphere is based on envy of others. Well, they probably were reading Ecclesiastes in their devotions. <laughs> what am I going to call this one? But it's a it's a it's it's something that we we know is true that when I grew up in the dark ages there was a, a phrase that we was used you've got to keep up with the Joneses the Joneses were the neighbors and that they if they've got something uh, on their porch that you wanted to have you had to get something better in fact many people have analyzed our whole economy and the, uh, the whole capitalistic economy of the United States and said it's based upon envy, wanting something bigger or better. Solomon says it here. 
this is vanity. This is striving after the wind. It goes nowhere. And simply because it's an observation of fact doesn't make it right. contrast to the one who's motivated to go to bigger and better there on the other hand there are those on the other end of the spectrum it's the fool verse 5 the fool folds his hands it says he eats his own flesh which my understanding from the biblical scholars is a euphemism that says he does nothing he just is consumed by his own indolence and laziness and does nothing and is consumed. Where have we seen this? We see it all around us. All around us. So what is the answer? The answer is in verse 6. I think the answer to this first um, cynical observation he sees in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands that are full of toil and striving after the wind. Better is contentment with yourself, with your lot, what, what God has given you and what he has provided for you than striving to be better or to look better than someone else. This is a New Testament admonition of the gospel, right? 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Aspire to live quiet, quietly, and mind your own business and work with your own hands. When's the last time you heard of an admonition to aspire to live quietly? 2 Thessalonians 3, 12. Do your work quietly and earn your own living. A handful of quietness and contentment is much better than toiling on the base of trying to be better than someone else. That, that, that uh, envy is similar to the word covet. And the 10th commandment, you know, we, we all of the other commandments are, are external, they're concrete. Uh, they're about uh, idols and other gods and, and, and not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying. But then there's that last commandment. Number 10, thou shalt not covet the Apostle Paul writes his bold testimony in Romans chapter 7. He said, all, all those other commandments were, were uh, external, and I could figure out a way in my Pharisaism to say that I had done every one of them perfectly. But then there, that he put that last commandment in there. Thou shalt not covet. And in it produced in me coveting of every kind. Driving him to the gospel. Driving him to understand that he could never earn his own righteousness. That only Christ 
could bring that righteousness to him. The second observation in these verses is the evil of going it alone. He said again, I, again, I saw vanity. I saw vanity, the fleetingness of life under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never, never satisfied with riches. So that he never adds, for whom? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I think Charles Dickens was reading this and his devotions when he wrote uh, A Christmas Carol. And he had the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, this old miserly man who can't even spare change for his worker on on Christmas and is mad that they're closing stores and commerce on Christmas Day. I know some Presbyterians are mad about that too, but for other reasons and probably good ones. Why? It never stops. He's working hard, doing everything he can to, to consume more and to collect more for himself. He never stops and asks, why am I doing this? Again, the description of so much of what we are involved in in life. It's vanity. It's an unhappy business. That's why, again, it's, it, it's Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of that, that story. He learns the value of family and warmth and friendship and begins to share his wealth. Again, it points to the fact that we, we are not to be engaged in life alone. God puts us in families for a reason. That's his plan. His plan is the, the family. And then, he, then he, his plan is the whole family of believers, the church, to save a people for himself. Sadly, we live in, in the land of the American idol, where, where uh, the uh, ideal of the self-made individual, the talent that brings you to the forefront of the public, and the uh, idolization of, uh, of the world is, is uh, paramount. You know, Sunday, Sunday mornings can sometimes be depressing if, you're, if your whole character and being and well-being is invested in a bunch of teenagers and what they do on Saturday afternoon or Saturday night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Don't do that. This place here where God has gathered you 
and gather wherever that place is regularly. And then we have visitors today. What a, what a blessing to have visitors. You see the importance of being away from their home fellowship, to be in the fellowship of God's people. It's so important. It goes on. I, I, I had to have another point to start with these, so I bet the extra advantage of companionship. Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work. That's, that should be obvious, right? What's the first thing that God said about man after he made man in chapter 2? In a perfect world, a perfect environment that Dow uh, pointed out in his marriage class this morning. A perfect world, perfect environment, a, a perfect man. And what does God say? It is not good. For man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. And it's a picture of God's care and love for us that he provides us a companion for life and, and the institution of marriage. What a blessing. But the greater picture, now pointing this out as well, the greater picture is of the church. Because this is, this is how God loves us as his people. Christ loved us as his bride and he died for us. And he nurtures us and he rose for us and he nurtures us and cares for us and loves us. So it's not just married people who need the fellowship of the church. Single people need the fellowship of the church. We all need the fellowship of the church. I always point out to single people, you know, when some sometimes in some fellowships it can be it can seem like that singleness is some kind somehow a lesser status or stature in the church. It should not be. I just want you to remember that the Lord Jesus was never married. The Apostle Paul, from all that we can tell, was never married. He was certainly single when he was doing his ministry. So many saints were called single. But they were not called alone. They were called to be a part of a fellowship. That's why the writer of Hebrews is adamant. Chapter 10, verse 31. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. But all the more draw near. Encourage one another as you see the day of Christ drawing near. If you've ever been in the military, if you've ever played a sport or been on our team, you know you know how important the buddy system is, right? You're, that's a, you, you've got to have someone to help you. Here's a very practical illustration. If you, if you fall out somewhere and no one sees you, how are you going to get out of that? You know, it even comes in the instructions manuals, right? 
there's, there's certain things, you, you read the instruction manual, which is something occasionally I do when I get desperate. <laughs> and, it, and it'll finally say something like, now with the help of a friend. <laughs> you, oh, this is why, this is why I've been missing. We have so many opportunities for fellowship in this church, men and women alike, couples, they're, 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 they're small groups, men's Bible study, women's Bible studies, um, fellowship. They had a hymn singing last night, the smooch, I think 20 people went. It's amazing the opportunities that you see before you. The, the Sunday morning gathering of God's people is not, it's not something to miss lightly. It's something that is absolutely essential for our spiritual well-being. And there is no substitute for it. To be at the stated times, at the stated place of worship, for the, for the express purpose of being built up by the gospel of grace in order to be sent out into the world to be a light for Christ. Even Solomon in his old age cynicism sees it here. And finally, see the example of a, a successful king. It almost sounds like he's talking about himself in these verses, but then there's so much detail and you know it's someone else. It almost sounds like he's talking about Joseph in Egypt, a poor man who was elevated to the throne of Egypt, but obviously it's not exactly him either. There's some example, and no one seems to know exactly who this is. But one who who uh, was poor and wise and rose to the throne. Almost sounds like his father David in some ways too. It's better to be someone like that than an old and foolish king. That certainly sounds autobiographical, like an autobiography of Solomon. He was, for a long time, he was an old and foolish king. Someone who had been given the gift of wisdom as no man had. Someone who was used by God to give the word of God in Proverbs. To give the word of God in the Song of Songs. To give the word of God in Ecclesiastes. Becoming so foolish. I'll tell you, this is one of the things that if you're in any bad spiritual condition, you should, you should have a lot of hope. I know I do. When I read, I used to think this is a depressing book. Now I don't think it's so depressing. There's hope. There's hope for the worst sinner to return and be used of God for His kingdom and for His glory. And that's the message that we should take away from this very philosophical and difficult book. better to be poor and wise and young than old and foolish and rich. As someone has well summarized this, 
There's no fool like an old fool. Solomon is in a place that he can see the end of his life. And what he sees is troubling to him. The kingdom is, he's, it's, it's probably by this time the Lord has already told him the kingdom is going to be torn from your hand, not, not but for your sake, for your father's sake, and it's going to happen after you die. He can, but he can see the end. He can see that his son Rehoboam is not up to the task. And he knows that Jeroboam uh, is out in Egypt waiting to come back. Maybe he's already on the way back. And that kingdom is going to be divided. There's going to be a mess. And God is moving him to write about it. The message is that life is short and then you die. That's the message. And what legacy will you leave? Even if you've done the great thing like this poor king who was rags to riches story and done, did all these incredible things, we don't even know his name. Solomon doesn't even give his name. He says, I just know a guy who did this. And that's the same way with our life. I do a lot of weddings. I do a lot of funerals. My grandma used to say, I feel sorry for you going to the ministry. You'll have to watch all your friends die. And I thought, what do you mean by that? That's not that. What she, what she meant is that was what she was watching at her age and station when I'm, now that I'm at grandpa age. It's true of everyone. Short of Christ's return, which we pray, O oh Lord, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. What legacy are you leaving? What legacy are you leaving? Psalm gets to this really hopeful. Go ahead and read the end of the book. You'll get a lot of so don't, you know, it, this should not be depressing. The legacy is there is eternal hope for the one whose faith and trust is in Christ alone. He, his illustration is one who's reached the pinnacle. Maybe he's thinking, I think Alexander the Great is a contemporary, but he's thinking of someone like Alexander the Great who goes out and conquers the whole known world and he weeps because there's not another world to conquer. <clears throat> For the one who puts their faith and trust in Christ, you truly have it all. You have an inheritance that is imperishable that will never fade away, kept and reserved in heaven for you. Do you know that blessed truth this morning? Because that is our only hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ alone, may you move them now by the Holy Spirit to change their mind and heart about Jesus and put their complete hope and confidence in Him and fill them with joy 
unspeakable for the hope of glory that awaits. Pray that for myself and everyone here in Jesus' name.